following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Some of you know, we've been uh, taking a look at Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart. He was a Thai monk who died in the 90s, 1990s, and very famous, well-known meditation teacher, including training many Westerners, people like Jack Kornfield and Ajahn Sumedho, for example, many others. And this first section of the book, Ajahn Chah is looking at, talking about renunciation. And this particular chapter, chapter 8, is all about, he calls it the flood of sensuality. And I've been mentioning many times now that a lot of these teachings, which often were given to monks and nuns, and not so much to lay people, but a lot of these teachings can rub us the wrong way. And it almost sound anti-life, like somehow uh, aversion to life is the path to awakening. And uh, hopefully we won't make that mistake. I can tell you with a lot of confidence that aversion to life is not the path to awakening. It's the path to being averse and tight. So we have to, you know, it's our responsibility to hear these teachings and to try to understand, is there anything, is there any way to understand this that makes sense in my lived experience? Like, what is it that we should actually be afraid of, and what is it that we shouldn't be afraid of? And, you know, the Buddha was, if you look carefully, the Buddha was very clear. His first teaching ever, he talked about the middle way. Some of you probably have heard that statement, you know, Buddhism and the middle way. This is the path, the middle path, between thinking that sense experience is going to make me happy forever, any particular combination of such experiences, no matter how perfect they are, will inherently be ephemeral. They're going to be impermanent. So it doesn't matter what particular combination of nice sense experiences we put together for ourselves, it's not going to last. It won't be dependable. It won't actually make us happy. Even now, when we have a, a nice set of pleasant circumstances going on, whether we notice it or not, under the surface is some sense that it won't last, that I have to, you know, this desire to want to make it last. Whether we know it right now or not, somehow buried in the psychology is a fear of getting sick, is a fear of getting old, is a fear of dying, is a fear of losing what we like. It's all there already. And it comes with nice experience. So when we're having not so nice experience, we want it to change. And when we're having really nice experience, we're not wanting it to change. Both of those attitudes are stressful. So the Buddha in that first talk, he talked about how the mind's dependence on sense experience is stressful and it's not the way to happiness. The mind rejecting sense experience is stressful and is not the way to happiness. So I teach the middle way, he said something like that. And it's kind of confusing. Well, if it's not about getting attached, building our life upon nice sense experience, if that's not the way, and if rejecting life isn't the way, 
I'm not so clear what the way is. Initially, we just have to uh, work with that. Like we see in our own life that whenever the mind is acting out its dependence on sense experience, its need for sense experience, it's like we're feeding off of it. Oh, if I only had this, I'd be able to extract some meaning, some happiness. Or if I could only get rid of this, make this over, make it end, then I'd be happy. We can keep seeing how those attitudes are stressful. And then slowly, with practice, we begin to awaken to what the Buddha calls the middle way. The heart, like I suggested at the end of the sit, you know, can we be fully present, aware of the body, aware of the mind, and be free? What's actually in the way of being free right now? Now notice how, as you address that question, you know, like how is it right now we know we're not perfectly happy? And you notice we actually have to construct a problem. Like, well, my knee hurts. I have a knee and it hurts and I don't like it. I want it to go away. Or whatever, you know, I'm worried about my job, I'm worried about my relationship, I'm worried about my health. We construct something, and then it's like we're frightened by it. We have a thought, we tell ourselves a story about our life, and it either intoxicates us in terms of really liking that thought we have about our life, or that thought about our life scares us. But either way, we have a reaction that causes some tension. And then we conclude that, oh, this isn't okay because I'm tight. That our tightness is a reaction to the thought we have about our life. But we can experiment. You know, we can just, in ordinary moments, of course, we're always going to have a problem with our thought about life. But how about life as it actually is? So thoughts are just thoughts, sights are just sights, sounds are just sounds, sensations are just sensations. When the Buddha talks about the flood, you know, he, he has a lot of potent, very graphic metaphors about our usual way of being in the world. And as I've mentioned in the past, the flood is one of the most common because he taught most of his life on the Ganges floodplain in northern India. And that was the big natural disaster, because back then, of course, they didn't know if it was raining upstream. And there, in the middle of the night or middle of the day, all of a sudden the river rises, sweeps away the village, no warning. You can imagine that it's a scary thing. And so the Buddha used that image of being swept away. Like we get swept away. Think about even today. How many times we saw something or thought something, and then that thought and the emotion associated with it led to this, we call like a tumbling forward, where we get swept away. For a while, we literally lose our life, we become absorbed in that drama, and everything else, in a sense, disappears for a while, and it's this play between the uneasiness in the heart and body and the content, you know, when we have a thought, the tendency is the next thought is going to be born out of that first thought. So we have a thought, 
you know, whatever it is, I might lose my job, or this company might go under, or something like that. That arises, and so then the next, and then we're anxious, so there's that emotion that goes with that thought, and then that thought ends, you know, it doesn't take long for a thought to come, and then it ceases, it goes away, but what's left is that, that, that anxious feeling in the heart, because thoughts are very ephemeral, they come and go very quickly, but the quality of the body, you know, the sort of emotional quality, that visceral feeling, that, that comes and goes more slowly. So the thoughts already come and gone, but there's that yucky, anxious feeling, and so the mind, in a sense, wants to fill up that space, so it thinks that that thought that it's going to think now is going to come out of the previous content colored by the emotion, the anxiety. And then we're going to basically have a similar kind of thought. Well, yeah, I really might lose my job. Then what am I going to do? And then again, there's anxiety, the thought, the next thought gets born out of the previous content, charged by that emotion. And this is what that wave, that flood is all about. What stops that? Well, either, you know, in that tumbling forward, one thought leading to another, charged by the emotion, each thought, each image, each memory, in a sense, recharges the emotion in the body, right? So as I think, oh God, no job, how am I going to pay my bills? And so there's that picture, you know, with words and images. And then what does the body do when it sees, experiences that picture? It feels the emotion again. And that emotion is there, sort of vibrating in the body. And it's the cause, is sort of the birthplace of the next thought, the next image, which then again recharges the body with that emotion. And some of us, in different ways, have been harboring certain patterns for decades, you know, resentments, conspiracy theories, you know, various rigid, tight views or ideas about our family, about our lover, about ourselves, about the world. So, instead of thinking of it as one flood, you know, maybe there are many floods sweeping us along. And we sort of get swept along with one, and then another one sweeps us a little further and further. And it really characterizes our life. Another graphic image the Buddha used is about creeping vines uh, in the tropics especially, we have our version of it with the Virginia creeper, but in the tropics, some of you spent time in tropical areas, nature is, I don't know if it's vicious is the right word, but it's, you know, terribly efficient. And one of the expressions of this efficiency are these vines that, you know, birds will eat some berries somewhere, and then they'll poop on the trunk, on the limb of a big tree, you know, that's so healthy and so established there in the forest, and, and the little seed of the vine will get there on the bark of the tree, and these particular vines don't really need to be grounded in the earth for a long time. They can live, and slowly, over decades, the vine grows, maybe eventually drops down roots into the ground, but it takes the structure of that huge, powerful, healthy tree, and it surrounds it completely. So that eventually there's no bark exposed of that original tree that's surrounded by the vine that has eventually encompassed the whole tree. And then it, you know, there's nothing, no canopy left from the original tree. It's just 
that vine, which is now looks like a huge tree, but it's actually just a vine. And that this is the image, another image of that flood, where because of the intoxicating quality of greed and aversion or any kind of agitation, agitating the emotional quality, and this associative quality of our mind, like where one thought leads to the next thought leads to the next thought, this is how our life can unfold. And one way or another, we're setting in mind, or we're setting in motion a particular mind. That's a little scary to think about that, like when we reflect back on the last 24 hours, last week, last month, about which sort of mind space we've been inhabiting, proliferating around, and then just to get a sense of, like, what sort of heart or mind has been set in motion, gaining momentum, you know? Is it a mind that's under the influence of fear? I've noticed, maybe some of you have, since uh, 2000, what is it, uh, 9-11, uh, 2001, was that? So, you know, for whatever, for any number of reasons, a lot of fear got opened up for a lot of people, for a lot of us. And uh, and then we have our reasons, you know, not just the evil terrorists, but we have global warming, we have the greedy corporate people, we have ignorant politicians, we have people who don't love us in the way that we should be loved, the cats in our lives that don't do what they're supposed to do, <laughs> vomit on our special carpets and... <laughs> We have all kinds of things that are terrorizing us. <laughs> and it feels so appropriate to be afraid. You know, we can even be afraid of our bad habits. You know, we see ourselves doing something and we're afraid of it. And it just begins to feel more and more appropriate to live in fear, like, because we don't realize that after that one thought, that one scary thought ceases, because thoughts come and go so quickly. This is one of the great insights in, in mindfulness practice is when you see very clearly a thought come and go and you realize, oh my God, it's almost nothing. Thoughts, you know, from a cognitive point of view, from a thinking point of view, thoughts seem substantial. But from a practice point of view where you're simply observing thought as thought, it's incredibly ephemeral. What is a thought actually? For example, just now you could just think the thought, you know, I'm what they call a man, or I'm what they call a woman. You know, you just, you go ahead, think that thought, and you can think it again, and then just notice that thought, like, what actually is that thought as you think it? So it comes out of nowhere, disappears into nowhere leaves really not much of a trace. Thoughts aren't much of anything. But the combination of what we call in Buddhism wrong view and the emotion associated with it, like fear I've been talking about, and that mind stream where the, through the process of identification taking this ephemeral thing we call a thought, taking it personally, that's what gives it weight. I think I'm a man. Or I know I'm a man. You know, that, that's just substantial. Like, I'm a man. And that, you know, we can 
that combined with like my attitude about that, like am I proud of that? Am I ashamed of that? Have I, have I, do I feel like I haven't lived up to that? Or I'm a beacon of manhood for all to emulate? <laughs> so whatever trip we might be under, it can make it seem like it's really substantial. And then we get swept away. So that just to get a sense of how we're being swept away, the Buddha has some powerful images, other images, like in terms of talk, when he talked about the hindrances, the, the different forces that propel us on, like I mentioned greed and aversion, but he also talked about doubt, and he talked about dullness, and he talked about restlessness, these five hindrances that keep the mind unstable, so it's in this tumbling cord, it's always reacting. Whatever is arising for us, the mind then reacts, sets the next moment in motion, which then leads to reaction and on and on. And he likened this to, like, desire is like uh, being in debt. You know, when we're wanting something, it feels like we're in debt, like we're in a big hole, and if I had that, I'd be out of the hole. Or... Being caught up in aversion or ill will is like being sick and that strong wanting to be healthy. And uh, enslaved is uh, being restless, that's right. So when you're restless, you know, you're kind of enslaved by the need to do, to be, you know, you can't be still, can't be settled. And doubt is like being in a dangerous territory. You know, that, you can, you know, we know that feeling where we're just anxious. We just assume I'm unsafe and I need to do things to be safe. And then the last one is being imprisoned. Sleepiness and dullness, all those different heavy states of mind. It's like being imprisoned. And I'm sure you felt that way when you've been dull and it's like you can't live your life. It's like you're locked away somewhere in the land of no energy. So these are the different particular qualities you can notice about that flood or that entrapment you feel in your life. And the Buddha, on purpose, uses these graphic images to scare us in a wholesome way. Like, honey, be careful. Given the culture, given the way the mind is conditioned, it's very easy for us to lose our lives, to be literally consumed. In a way, we all have this tendency towards addiction, addiction to drama, to self-drama. And it can literally fill up our lives so that there's no room for anything else. In the same way those vines, in a very slow, gradual way, take over the tree until that tree loses its life. The self-drama slowly take over this life until there's no life, no wisdom, you could say, that recognizes that it's lost its life. We're just a bunch of habit energies plowing forward. I'm sure you recognize, I mean, when we have a little bit of mindfulness, we can recognize it. We get home, nobody's there, nobody to sort of impress. And we can just get swept away, you know, become that hungry beast that roaming through the cabinets looking for something interesting. <laughs> Even though we're pretty sure there's nothing good to eat, Still, we look, and then it's like, well, what could we possibly put together? <laughs> and if we weren't so lethargic, we'd get in the car, we'd drive somewhere, you know, and get what we want. But 
you know, and we try to make something and it won't really satisfy us, so we'll try something else and that doesn't, we do the same thing with surfing through the channels or looking through the internet, calling friends, looking for something to be born into. And this is a related term that's used a lot of becoming or taking birth, bawa, I think is the pronunciation, the Pali word. And you know that always taking birth. In this chapter, Arjun Chah talks about, you know, because he's often talking to people who were farmers in northeast Thailand where he taught, you know, it was primarily an agricultural area, especially at the time back in the mid-1900s, and forests and rice farmers and other farming. And uh, he said, like, if you have an orchard, you know, if you if you have any identification with it, it's like you've taken birth. And if someone cuts down a tree, it's like a personal violation. If you have an opinion that Obama's a good president or uh, Mitt Romney would be a better president, if you take birth into that view, then it's like you that view is part of who you are. So if somebody has a different view... It feels like a personal violation when you're around somebody with a different view. This is what makes getting together on Thanksgiving so challenging for some of us. <laughs> because there are people with the wrong view. view. If they only understood. And this is the thing about all that, you know, that identity, that taking birth in all this way. This is part of the flood is that we take, we keep taking birth into ideas, into opinions, into all these different attachments. And then we immediately suffer the consequence. We get tight because we're not getting what we want or somebody's challenging our ideas in some way. And in a way, there's nobody who can help us. There's a statement in the Buddhist tradition I think it was, it might have been even Ajahn Chah who made this, came up with this line. The Buddha's already done his work, now it's time for us to do our work. And in the Mahayana tradition in, in Buddhism, there's a line that's something like, uh, all the Buddhas can do is point the way. You know, we have to walk or awaken on our own. Nobody can awaken. The only person who can awaken, the only thing that can awaken is ignorance can awaken. So, to the degree our mind is ignorant, is misperceiving, is disconnected, that's where the awakening has to happen. That's why Buddhists can't help us, right? The awakening that needs to happen is here, in the heart, in the mind. It's like the tendency to misperceive, to be swept away through our reactive patterns, that has to change. Hajan Chah gives an example in this chapter of, you know, it almost sounds like he's complaining. He's talking about how, you know, he, he'll scold one of the monks or some of the monks. Like, for example, there's all these training rules. I mean, it's pretty uh, probably overwhelming for the monks and the nuns because there's hundreds of rules and all these different etiquettes about how you do things. Every little thing, in a way, is uh, there's a rule about it how you wash your bowl after your meal, how you speak to somebody who has more seniority to you versus somebody who has less seniority to you, all these different ways of wearing your robes, 
So it's a very regimented, and all of this, if it's used correctly, is they're just places to develop mindfulness and to practice giving the life over to the form. In the same way, we as lay people, you know, we could spend our whole life being a rebel, you know, around standing in the bus line, like, why, you know, I, I don't know if we do it here so much, but certain places, like, they're really into cues, like, getting lined up. And, uh, you know, other people are just rebellious, like, that's, that's just too anal to stand in line, you know, we'll all get in. And, and just to notice, you know, that different ways that we resist the form, like those of us who are in partnerships, married or in a long-term partnership, there are basic rules that we all understand about taking care of each other, like how to be kind, how to sort of know what that person needs and how to give them what they need and know how to ask. But we like to, you know, I don't know if it's a death wish, but (laughs) we don't like to play by the rules that we understand. We understand the rules, but we don't really want to play by them. And it's just interesting how that is. It's like being played out in Washington, D.C., you know, the way that Congress is. I mean, everybody knows it's not the way that it should be, but yet they can't seem to help themselves. To be, to sort of operate in this very divisive, inefficient way. That doesn't really benefit. It's not like, who's getting rewarded? You know, the American people, I think it's like 14% approve of the Congress, and, or maybe it's less now, I don't know, but it's almost 90% disapprove of what they're doing, and yet, that doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> I don't understand it exactly, but, I think it's this thing getting swept away. It's like we're we're literally blinded that we keep seeking happiness in ways that don't lead to happiness, but it's like all we know, so we just keep seeking. Like people who are addicted to alcohol just keep seeking happiness and more drinking, even though they can even have a sense of their life being flushed down the drain, but yet they know they're suffering, but all they can think of is, well, maybe a drink will help. You know, maybe watching more TV will help. Maybe eating more will help. Maybe complaining more will help. Gossiping more will help. I mean, all these different ways that we try to be happy, even though we know better. These are these examples of being swept away, taking birth. So anyway, I was going to tell you the story Ajacha says in this about the orchard and... Um, you know, all of our possessions, all of our ideas that these are births, you know, that we then have to protect. So one of the ways we get swept away is how personal everything feels. And yet, we don't, we, it doesn't occur to us that we no, maybe don't take things personally. I mean, it feels so personal when a storm comes and, you know, damages the roof or, blows something over, blows a tree over. But we didn't have to take the house personally. I mean, we could still live in it and, in a sense, legally own it. But we don't need to take it personally. We don't have to take our health personally. We don't have to take our body personally. We don't even need to take our thoughts personally. That's actually a choice we have in every moment. But part of being swept away is the sense that everything is personal. That's like one of the characteristics of being swept away, this flood 
that the Buddha is pointing to is how personal everything seems. Like everything has drama to it. And you see how it just fits in like the whole economy and all the media and just generally like the buzz of the culture. It all operates on this principle of drama. Self-drama. And it doesn't, you know, like even your drama in a way becomes about me because then I have an opinion. I have a personal opinion about your drama. And that's this whole world of celebrity, isn't it? It's like, we don't, it doesn't occur to us that it's really about us. But the reason we're interested in celebrities and whether they're fat or thin or getting married or getting unmarried or, you know, worth millions or losing it all is because we have personal opinions about them. This is one of the celebrities I respect and like. This is one of the celebrities I don't like. And, um, well, they deserve that to happen to them. Or, oh, that's too bad that it happened to them. So it's all personal, even though in a sense it's not our life, but we have a personal relationship to it. And that's that quality of the flood. And the more we think everything is personal, the more we relate in this way, then it's harder and harder not to take everything personally. And this is the corner that we try to turn in our meditation practice. Like even tonight, doing, for the first 20 minutes or so, when we were doing, most of us were doing the mindfulness of breathing practice, you can see what a profound turning that is, where, you know, nobody would know if we were thinking dramatic ways. But maybe, for periods of time, we chose just to notice that one in-breath. And then maybe to notice that next out-breath. Like, what a profound renunciation that is. Like, I could get caught up in the flood, in the drama. I could let my mind be swept into some drama, some interesting thing. Whatever might, you know, is there really global warming? How soon will it happen? Does it make sense to plant trees? I mean, I have these ideas like, what sort of investments are worth making? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Should we buy the canned goods now? Or when we really need them, will they be expired? You know? (laughs) Or will then it be too late? You know, there'll be a run on the grocery stores and then there won't be any canned goods left. I mean, this is the... The way that our minds work around these things. You know, even thinking we're going to be ecological, but there's this sort of, uh, you see it in the, you know, survivalist mentality. You know, well, I have my little island that nobody, you know, will know about. And I'm going to tell you, even, I should have mentioned that it's an island. <laughs> I was just kidding. <laughs> like, uh, where was I reading that? There's some article about survivalists. Now it's becoming sort of more mainstream. And they were interviewing one sort of hardcore survivalist, someone who's been a survivalist for a long time. And he said, well, back in the day, you know, whatever that was, a decade or a couple decades ago, you would never even mention what state you're in. Like if you were writing about how you're kind of getting your act together so you're be able to survive the apocalypse, you wouldn't even tell people what state you're in because you don't want them to know because... As soon as the apocalypse comes, of course, we're going to be very interested in who's been prepared. <laughs> he said, but nowadays, it's sort of cool to mention you're into sort of getting your act together. And 
being self-sufficient in different ways. So there's just so many of these floods that get swept away. And as if somehow, through our cleverness and our dramas, we're going to make it to that promised land of whatever, that's perfect utopia where we're safe. Like, who's ever safe? There's no safety in this world. So, what what we can do is we can, we all know that on some level, intellectually at least, if we reflect on it. It's pretty easy for a human being, if they just reflect a little bit, it's pretty easy for human beings to come to the conclusion, you know, I don't think there's any safety. All we have to do is be on the deathbed of somebody we love and just observing how that happened, that whole process of a human being leaving everything behind. It just, if we just let it in, you know, really let that in, we realize, oh, oh, this life can't be about safety. You know, if, if happiness is a function of perfect safety, it's a setup for disappointment. You know, and even the denial is painful. You know, like being in denial that there is no safety, there is no safety. So then, when we do our simple sitting practice and we're willing to be with the breath, you see what an affront it is to that habit of being swept away, like wanting safety, psychological safety, physical safety, existential safety, believing in a God who's there for us. You know, all the different ways that we seek safety, in different ways. And uh, safety in a thing. You know, a thing that we've conceived of or that we know of, something that's held and permanent and there. Then, when we're just willing to be aware of the in-breath and aware of the out-breath, you see what an affront that is to that. Like, it's a, uh, a real challenge. And then, if we do that for some period of time, and of course, it's not about the breath. We could do it walking. We could do it sitting and feeling the breeze against the cheek or cooking dinner. But when we give ourselves completely, and I mean really completely, wholeheartedly, to something ordinary, brushing our teeth, breathing in, walking, hearing, in that moment, in those moments, we've let go of this neurotic desire for perfect safety in a world that doesn't deliver perfect safety. And we discover something in those moments. We discover a peace a wholeness of fulfillment that isn't about what we have or what we don't have or what we're going to get or what we lost. It isn't about any of that. It's inherent. In fact, it's there. It's always been there. It will always be there. The only thing we can do is to be distracted. Like the Buddha said, the heart, the essence, the nature of the heart is already radiant and pure but this is missed because of visiting defilements, the tendencies of the mind to be caught up in, in drama. So we have, you know, we have this choice, but we have to practice because we're living in a flood. The culture is a flood. Our family of origin, our friends, our own conditioning, it's all part of this flood. Our habit energy is primarily based on this neurotic, dramatic, self-centered, greed, aversion-based drama. 
And so we have to challenge that. So we get some teachings from someone like the Buddha, for example, and he lays it out and he kind of paints this picture. Hey, take a look at your life. Do you notice what you're doing? Do you notice how it doesn't actually lead to security as you imagine it is? How many times have we done something to feel good about ourselves, but we still need to do something to feel good about ourselves? It's not like now we feel good about ourselves and we're done. Has anybody got to the done fight? <laughs> There's always more to do. But we're so busy doing the next thing to feel good about life that it, we forget, we miss this huge, obvious fact that it doesn't lead, there is nothing that leads to some lasting satisfaction. We're always needing to do something more. So that's, the Buddha points that out. Someone like the Buddha points that out. And that, that really begs the question of mine, well, what is the way to happiness then? If all the things I'm doing isn't the way, what is the way? And then when you're in that place, the Buddha delivers the next lesson. Well, you might just try letting go as the way to happiness. But we're not going to be willing to try letting go until we see, we have some insight that has shown us that all the ways we've been seeking happiness is temporary at best and ultimately insecure. Otherwise, no one wants to hear that letting go might be a way. But if we start having some intuitive sense that mostly what we're doing isn't helping, then then we're really willing to listen because we have some insight based on our own experience that what we're doing isn't working. That's a powerful place to be. That's, that's a huge step already for a human being to have a pretty clear sense that what they've been doing isn't working and just generally what the culture is doing isn't leading to happiness. Then they're willing to listen. Okay, well, I'll check it out. It's not that dangerous to practice letting go. So I'll check it out. So that's like what we did in our 35-minute sit tonight, you know. The first half or so, we practice letting go in one particular way. You know, instead of all the things we could be doing with our mind, we decided to do just this one thing and know the in-breath and know the out-breath. That's a huge letting go, because we could be doing, you could be thinking about Renaissance history. You know, you could be thinking about the newest type of ice cream at the co-op. Now they've got coconut-based ice cream. They have... You know, now it's old-fashioned, soybean-based ice cream, you know, the soy dream or whatever it's called. There's rice-based ice cream, there's oatmeal-based ice cream. I mean, who eats dairy-based ice cream anymore? (laughs) I do. (laughs) I mean, that that alone is a a perfect example of this proliferation, this sort of flood. (laughs) I don't even remember where I was. <laughs> but I know it had something to do with our neurotic tendencies. <laughs> and you see, what a, it's such a powerful renunciation to just come back to the breath. So that's one way to practice letting go. And we might discover, heck, that feels good. Just to be with the in-breath and to be with the out-breath, that feels so good. That simplicity of mind the mind that's not seeking anything, not trying to be happy. It's just interested in knowing the next in-breath, just interested in knowing the next up-breath. 
that feels so much more satisfying than to figure out what I should do tomorrow or who I am and or whether I did something wrong earlier today. So that's one example where we can experiment with letting go. And then at the end of the set, we did a more open attention practice where we're practicing including everything. So now instead of letting go of what we would do with our mind and just being with the breath, we're basically saying anything goes except whatever arises in the space of the mind, whatever thought or memory or sensation in the body or sound or sight, whatever it is that arises, I'm just going to let it come and go. I'm going to practice seeing it as a natural thing and not taking it personally. So here the powerful renunciation with open attention practices we're renouncing the self-centered view. So whatever phenomena the mind knows in a moment is fine, but we're not taking it personally. It's just hearing being, sound being heard, thought being known, sensation being felt, sight being seen, smell being smelled, taste being tasted. So we're just letting everything in, letting everything come and go, and practicing non-confusion, or what in Buddhism we call right view. Everything is just the natural movement of causes and conditions. It's not personal. We don't need to make it personal. We can just know that that's a thought coming and going, that's a sound coming and going, that's a sight coming and going. So that's a profound letting go of drama, self-centered drama. And then when we start getting caught up in self-centered drama, like an open attention or being with the breath, then we immediately notice, oh, that hurts. Being attached, being identified, trying to control, resisting our experience, all of that hurts. So we just make that connection. Attachment, suffering. Attachment, stress. And then we let go, come back to the breath, or come back to open attention practice, which is, again, the practice of letting go. When we're training with the breath, we're letting go of the diversity of what the mind could be doing, and we're just doing this one thing, knowing the in-breath and knowing the out-breath. And we're realizing it's possible to let go of everything in the world. And eventually, it, we won't even be paying attention to the breath and the out-breath as much as we'll be just aware of the emptiness of the mind itself, the silence or stillness of the mind itself, and the concentration develops. And so here, it's like we've let go of everything. We're not even aware of the body. We're just aware of peace, of stillness, of silence. That's the letting go of concentration, where the mind, the heart is let go of everything except stillness. That's the only object left in the mind, peace and stillness when the concentration is really deep. So that's the, the direction with concentration practice. With more of the wisdom, Vipassana practice, the open attention practice, the fruit of that is anything can happen. All conditions are allowed to come and go. You're not shutting yourself off from any part of life. So there, you know, you're sort of sitting in an upright, alert way. You can even practice with your eyes open, with open attention practice. And whatever thought, sound, smell, taste, touch that comes up in the field of the mind, the space of the mind, everything is welcomed with a big yes. Yes, this is how it is now. And the renunciation is not taking any of it personally. Not feeling like you have to do anything with it. Just let it come and go. Allow things to be. It's a much harder practice in a way. But the result is much more profound. It's Profound as it is to have moments of real stillness, 
where the mind has really let go of the dramas and is just resting in peace, that's so healing. But it's even more healing to be wide open and the mind not clinging to any experience that's coming and going. And of course, that open attention practice really lends itself to daily life practice a lot more. So generally the way I instruct, although you can follow your own instincts once you've got some experience under your belt, but in the beginning, the majority with the more of the concentration, it always takes some time to do the open attention practice. And then once you get some more experience, then you can just decide what is a good way to practice for you that night or that month or that year. Or you could talk to me or talk to another teacher and get some guidance. But I'll leave it here so we have about 10 minutes. It would be nice to hear from people. You might have some questions about what I've said, or maybe you have some experiences that are relevant to what I've said that you'd like to share with the group. It's always good to hear from people under practice. Yeah, please say your name. Yeah, when I often think about how uh, I get swept away by the flood of identifying or like personalizing the world around me, and how do I apply that, you know, my daily meditation? I think about this one line that Shogun Trungpa said in Buddha, and it goes, meditation is not uh, a realm in which we try to achieve X, B, nor D, spiritual merit, nor is it a place to try or an attempt to become a better person, but rather a place in which we allow ourselves to undo the neurotic habit patterns our minds and conditions of the soul. And I think about that quite often because Sometimes it's really easy to even get swept away in like sense perceptions that are culminated by meditation. And yes. it's very easy to get attached to those things and feel, you know, that the anonymity that's achieved through meditation is something that, you know, you want to attach to and place into your daily life and things, you know, it's like uh, I can be a quantist and brush my teeth and this unless I'm not it's like how oh, I brush my teeth in the first place, you know, so I'm not to be mindful about it. Um so things we can get from Mason's comments is if if you find something that really works for you, like that very pithy teaching that Mason repeated from Kumpa Rinpoche, it's really worthwhile memorizing it. Because a lot of the times we won't remember in our own words how to practice, but we can repeat some very powerful teaching, and that can really bring a lot of clarity to the mind. One of the first books I read in the early 80s was Trumpa Rinpoche's book, uh, Spiritual Materialism, which is very much on the topic that Mason brought up. And it was a huge teacher in my life, that book, which I read several times uh, over the course of a couple of years. Yeah, other comments people have? Yeah, in the back. Say your name, Chris. Very. Hi. Yeah, 
And you know, you can always ask me to repeat the question, and I should just get in that habit. Yeah, thanks, Mary, for bringing that up. That's an important point. talking about seeking approval. I don't know if this, did you hear that, Mary? No. Yeah, so she was talking about seeking approval and and how pervasive that tendency is and how we can get like that flood. I mean, she didn't use the word the flood, but we get swept away by that need for approval and it's part of our culture. We're, in a sense, we're taught to seek approval. And that's like how we create a healthy sense of self-esteem is by being approved. That's how we know that we're worthy is that We've sought it in other people, and they like us, so we must be worthwhile. And this is really part of that basic tendency. You could say the root of all ignorance is we're seeking satisfaction or seeking happiness externally by according to what people think about us. And even our own thoughts about ourselves, in a sense, is external. Like, oh, I like myself. That's not that much better. And it's related to what Mason was saying, like, even our meditative experiences can be used to sort of for self-approval. Well, I had a good sit, you know, or I feel a lot of equanimity. And we're, in a sense, constructing a self out of our good feeling. Whether that good feeling comes from people liking us, or having success in school, or having a nice car, or a nice body, or whatever, you know, we might use to create a sense of self-worth. And what we can do it, and like you expressed, you know, just to, you, you said like, well, I can do it for a whole hour and then realize basically that you're empty handed, that you haven't gotten anywhere thinking about that, you know. And this is what we want to discover is how empty, how hollow those pursuits, like seeking happiness through self-approval or seeking happiness through having a, a beautiful self or a good self is inherently frustrated. Because whatever kind of self we create, even through meditative attainments, is fragile, uncertain, ephemeral, impermanent. So we can never create satisfaction or anything ultimately satisfying through the construction. Because whatever is constructed becomes unconstructed, falls apart. There's only, I mean, now you don't have to believe this, but it's worth checking out. There's only one way to happiness, according to the Buddha. It's the happiness 
of non-clinging. We've been taught the happiness comes from clinging, getting a hold of what brings a sense of a healthy sense of self. But people who look deeply into their lives realize it's always unstable. It's always unsatisfying. It's always stressful to do that. Is there another way? And then those people who ask that question and they give some decent instruction, they'll begin to experiment with letting things be. Not needing to construct anything. Not clinging is the activity of non-construction or letting things be. Time maybe for just one more comment or question. Yeah, a question in. Rich. Rich. I think that's right. So Rich was saying that, you know, at our culture probably we could care go-getters, uh, individualists, willing to apply our will. But, you know, they may be problematic for other cultures, but in different ways. Like, one of the things you get by reading the discourses of the Buddha, you know, because he was teaching in a particular culture, and there, and, and also I've practiced in Asia several times, and a lot of what you hear from some of the Asian teachers is a, a much more like pushing their students but there's more of a sense of complacency in those cultures just letting things be and they might need that sort of teaching but that teaching isn't necessarily so good for westerners as much you know and so one of the things like when we read a book by an Asian teacher you'll notice that there may be more of that pushing energy than is useful for us in general you know you can't generalize too much but and that we might need more of uh, the teachings on trust and relaxing and being more reflective. But other people, you know, with other kinds of personalities, they might already be in that habit of sitting back and trusting that things will take care of themselves. And they might need a little bit more of that, like lighting a fire under their butt and say, come on, look, get interested. Work with your mind. So a lot of what uh, is useful in the beginning of, of, you know, just generally, but not everybody, is like just find just finding a basic comfort. Because a lot of people come in and they just want to achieve. They, they want to get the instructions and they want to like get some nice experience. And then they want to compare their experience to other people. I'm like, well, how am I doing relative to the rest of you? You know. And there's all this, you know, Americans generally, we like these hierarchical, here, and, you know, at Common Ground, we don't do it so much, but, you know, who's been practicing longer, who's done more retreats, you know, and even different costumes for where you are, you know, you're, you're this kind of priest or you're that kind of practitioner, and 
you get a ribbon or you get some, you wear a special hat. <laughs> yeah, so if anybody wants to help us create that sort of hierarchy here. So you're right. I think you're right that generally we have that tendency. And so what's useful for us is uh, just this sense of like this real emphasis that what we're after is the most natural thing. Because it really, uh, that sense of I need to apply a lot of self-will to make something happen, we need to disengage that part that's overused. It's not that effort's not good. Effort is really important. But that the effort comes from a particular worldview, and when that worldview is neurotic and self-centered, that effort's not so useful. So the first thing we have to do is disengage from that kind of effort, because that effort won't get us anywhere in our practice. It's better just to sit there and do nothing initially until you can find an effort that's not that neurotic achievement, attainment effort. So that's why, you know, there's a real emphasis on just settling at the beginning of the set, just being content with being in the body, feeling the body sitting, feeling the breath coming and going. We need to leave it here. It's a couple minutes after nine. Let's just take a breath together. Let go of the words. Maybe some resting in some sense of deep trust in the goodness, the naturalness of the heart and mind, a peace or wisdom that's inherent, in a sense waiting to be open to. So may this path of awakening be a cause for real peace in our hearts and in the world. And thanks again, everyone, for being here tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.